whatever your interest is, whatever you want to be an activist about, to my mind, freedom from unwarranted and improper surveillance is a baseline that enables that democratic change to occur. It's what enables a society to evolve. And so for me, that's why I care about this. In a way, it's my way of caring about all those other issues as well. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Our speaker tonight um, is, uh, uh, is currently um, the American Civil Liberties Union's Surveillance and Cybersecurity Council, working on the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. In the past, she's, uh, and she's gonna tell us about um, some of her, her previous work as well with the EFF at Stanford, with the, um, the Internet and Society um, program, which she uh, largely built up there, and uh, as well as working, uh, working as a defender of hackers in the courts. So um, we're going to have a, a quite a fantastic talk. Let's give a big round of applause now for Jennifer Granick. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. It's nice to see so many friends in the audience. Um, so I now work at the ACLU, and I've been at the ACLU for about seven months. Um, and it's been a, a great experience to be part of this kind of organization. Um, in the 1919 and 1920, uh, there were these incidents called the Palmer Raids. And basically, the attorney general at the time, whose name was Palmer, had targeted people who he suspected of being radicals. And they were rounding up these people without getting warrants or arrest warrants or anything, and uh, questioning them, searching their homes, and putting them in jail under very brutal and uh, oppressive conditions. And there were a small group of people who decided that this is not what a democracy looks like. And that was the beginning of the ACLU. And since that auspicious beginning in 1920, the ACLU has, has been a principled organization that has stood up for our constitutional rights. Um, sometimes that stance is controversial, um, and sometimes what seems controversial at the time ends up winning the day. It was ACLU lawyers that partnered with Clarence Darrow to uh, represent Scopes in the Scopes trial. Um, we lost that trial, but that uh, publicity helped Americans see that academic freedom was important and was something that was worth fighting for. Um, we stood up against the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Uh, the ACLU was there uh, in the 70s um, when one of our more controversial positions 
um, fighting for the ability of Nazi groups to march in Skokie, a largely Jewish suburb. And I think that lost a lot of um, friends for the ACLU, but what it showed is that whatever your political point of view, if there's a constitutional right there, the ACLU will stand up for it. Um, and more recently, uh, we also represented alt-right um, hate groups that wanted to march in Charlottesville. Um, that uh, march ended in violence and the death of Heather Heyer, a 32-year-old woman, um, at the hands of one of the alt-right sympathizers. And that incident prompted a lot of soul-searching um, within the ACLU and I think with um, people who are defenders of freedom of expression um, in, our, you know, in our cohort about what are the limits of the rights for freedom of expression. And I think um, you know, the ACLU's ultimate position is that um, even very odious, very hateful speech should be defended so long as it um, is not tied with or provoking violence. And um, I think in this day and age that's controversial, but that is consistent with what the organization has fought for throughout our long history. So for me, it's just a real honor to be able to be part of this group and to help stand up for these principles. You know, today the ACLU is so much more than a free speech group. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's also a group that fights for um, prisoners' rights, for criminal justice, for LGBTQ rights, for, um, uh, for disability rights, for immigration rights. And so I think that um, variety also gives the organization a lot of strength because sometimes your civil liberties values conflict with each other and you need to hold both those values dear and then talk about them to figure out what the right principled stance is when you're going to decide you know, what's, what the trade-offs are and how you're going to protect people. Um, I got, and we can talk more about that during Q&A if people want to. Um, I came to the ACLU from Stanford Center for Internet and Society, um, which I uh, started, helped start in 2001. Um, and I got the job at Stanford, people often ask me, um, you know, how did that all begin? And really, I was a criminal defense lawyer. And I was representing people who were charged with all kinds of run-of-the-mill crimes. Um, but I was working for this small, little boutique, white-collar defense firm. And they were like, these people you're representing do not have enough money. You need to find some kind of criminal specialty with people who have more money. So I was like, okay, uh, that's cool. Um, there's this new thing that's the internet, and I think it's kind of cool. So I'm going to do computer crime, and that'll be what I do. And so I um, went to DEF CON, which is the world's largest hacker convention, and I went to Computers Freedom and Privacy um, in 1996, which at the time was the biggest uh, law, policy, and technology conference uh, that was out there. And um, it, those conferences really changed my life. Um, and I started getting clients who, and I was one of the early lawyers who was defending people who were charged with computer crimes or with intellectual property um, abuses stemming from their research into networks or into software and how software works. Um, but it was great experience. I really fell in love with the hacker culture, this idea that we're measured by um, our minds and not by where we come from or by our gender or by how we look. Um, but what I didn't do was make any money. 
So <laughs> that, that part I failed on, um, and that's okay. I'm still failing on that, but this, it's all right. It's all right. Um, and so I uh, you know, ended up uh, getting fired from that firm, and I went out on my own for a while, and then um, I got recruited uh, to help start the cyber law clinic at, at Stanford teaching students how to work on cases that involve the intersection of um, civil liberties and technology and how to litigate those cases. Um, and I loved it at Stanford. Stanford's a wonderful place and it's extremely rewarding to be teaching there. Um, but, you know, it, now I feel like, it, you know, spending, I'm spending all of my time um, and all of my energy on the actual litigation and policy work that has to do with the civil rights uh, and technology. Um, and it feels very salient to me now in particular um, because Trump is president, but many of the issues that I'm working on today are the same issues that I was working on when Obama was president and that I was calling out as being problems then. And uh, I wrote my book, American Spies, when Obama was president and when I thought that Hillary Clinton would be our next president. And um, for people who've seen the book, you can see that it's filled with um, cautionary tales about how we're doing stuff wrong. So this isn't a partisan decision. This is very much this idea that we're missing the big picture about how technology is changing our privacy rights, about how it's giving the government too much power over us and something needs to change. Um, I wanted to highlight kind of these big picture trends that I saw and that I really learned about um, post the Edward Snowden disclosures. And those trends were primarily, one, modern surveillance is mass surveillance. Two, there is an unprecedented, an unprecedented amount of secrecy which hides the full extent of surveillance from us. And three, you should care. Yes, you should care, because a lot of people are like, well, what's it to me, why do I care? So modern surveillance is mass surveillance. I think, um, you know, living in San Francisco and being interested in this talk, I think a lot of people know, you know, technology today has just generated so much more data about us than has ever been before. Um, you know, whether it's our physical location, which is tracked by our cell phone, from conversations that we have that we store in our Gmail for forever, our um, friends lists that we have on Facebook, and then it's only really going to grow because once we start having these interconnected devices, uh, the so-called Internet of Things, that uh, connects our refrigerator and our stove and our heart monitors and our Fitbits and all of that stuff to the internet and gives off data, there's even more information that's out there. And there's an immense amount that um, you can tell from this information. Um, you know, you can define from it people's religion, who your friends are, what your politics are, uh, what your, you know, so this information can be, um, especially in aggregate, very revealing about, about you. Um, and it's different in a lot of ways from what people think of when they think about surveillance because people think surveillance is targeted at particular people of interest. Um, and certainly that was true in the past. Uh, if you thought or suspected that somebody was a criminal, then law enforcement could target that person. If Attorney General Palmer thought or suspected that somebody was a radical, 
then you could target that person. But increasingly what's true today is that the mainstream is targeted. Information is collected about all of us and then saved for later in case it might be useful. So that, that cost of going out and collecting the information, that friction, which was a feature of privacy in the olden days, is no longer there. Um, it is cheap and easy to get the information and save it for, for forever. And now, you know, the question is, when do, does the government behind the scenes then access and use and analyze that information? So, um, I, another point is that, you know, techno so the mainstream is monitored. Uh, surveillance is not bounded by space and time. You can reach into the past to find out things about people, and the law enforcement agents don't need to be there in the city with you to know what it is. Um, and then increasingly, this analysis is done by machines instead of by people. And the conclusions are conclusions that are drawn by machines. Most of what we know about surveillance abuses is from the civil rights era. And about 50 so years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. That speech today is so uncontroversial that my, when my daughters were in third grade, they memorized it in, at school. But at the time, Dr. King was extremely controversial. And um, most Americans either didn't support the civil rights movement or thought that it was moving way too fast. Within the government, the uh, FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, believed that King was not truly interested in fixing the racist situation that African Americans found themselves in, but that he was a uh, plot. He was he was a um, uh, he was uh, infiltrating the United States and the political system on the behalf of of communists, and so. Um, Hoover had King put under surveillance with the knowledge of the president, who was a Democrat, and uh, they watched him. And they put bugs in Dr. King's hotel room to record conversations that were going on between him and other civil rights leaders. And they, those microphones also captured sounds of Dr. King having um, extramarital affairs. The FBI took those recordings and years later found in the FBI files was a letter, that, uh, a draft of a letter that they sent to Dr. King. And in the letter, they said, you are a horrible and vile person. We know about what you've been up to. And the letter even um, intimated to King that he should commit suicide and kill himself rather than allow for the FBI to reveal to the public these recordings that they had on him. Um, eight months after this, he was, he was murdered. So the people like to think of this story as really being an indictment of J. Edgar Hoover. But J. Edgar Hoover was not an anomaly. He was the FBI director for, for decades, and presidents throughout those decades supported him and knew what he was up to. Um, this is just an era that we happen to know more about the uh, abuses because there was an empowered committee, a congressional committee, that was able to do an investigation into it. Um, 
and we know very little about what the surveillance abuses are today. We can see the tip of the iceberg. We see some inklings of it um, from the following of uh, uh, or monitoring of Black Lives Matter, from uh, infiltration of Occupy, from uh, Tea Party groups getting audited by the IRS more. Um, this is, um, you know, not the full story, but we can see how this information is subject to abuse. Um, so the mainstream is monitored, and what's, our, what's an example of that? We had, uh, you know, we have our phone records, and our phone records alone can be very revealing. They say who we call, how often we call, who we're close to, um, whether we have doctors, what kind of doctors they are. Um, and yet this information, this sensitive information, was collected in bulk for years about every American. And the only reason we found out about this was because Edward Snowden revealed it to us. Um, and in fact, uh, we, you know, there was some suspicion that this was true, but uh, the government basically obfuscated it and lied about it. Um, and I'll talk about the secrecy in a minute. Um, but, the, but the issue with this data is that it was collected for no good cause. There's no good cause to collect all Americans' phone record information. Um, and we have a process, that's a, a legal process that's in place, the goal of which is to try to make sure that when the government does collect information about us, that there's good reason to do it. And that is the warrant process. And so, you know, often you'll hear privacy people talk about a warrant. The thing that's important about a warrant is it's a process that requires the investigators to go before a neutral party, a judge, and explain to the judge what the reason is that they want to collect the information and show that it's a good reason and that they're collecting basically the information that meets that reason and no other, no other. Okay, so that's, instead of it being promiscuous and untargeted, the warrant is a process, it, it's really one of the only processes that we have in the law to try to make sure that surveillance is appropriate. Um, and so, you know, what data today is protected by this warrant requirement? I named lots of different categories of data. Browsing histories, friends lists, uh, medical, uh, you know, your Fitbit data, um, your phone records, your bank records. Um, and the problem is that none of this data is protected by the warrant requirement now because the growth of information has vastly outstripped the development of the law. The law is way behind. And so all of this sensitive information is out there about us without this adequate protection. And one of the reasons I think we haven't politically been able to do this protection is because people don't know what kind of surveillance is taking place. So I mentioned before that there was this collection of our phone records in bulk, Americans' phone records, domestic calling records in bulk. We learned about it from Edward Snowden, but um, it wasn't for lack of trying. Uh, in a congressional hearing, Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon had asked the Director of National Intelligence, uh, James Clapper, um, is the US government collecting in bulk any kind of information about American citizens. And Clapper's answer was no, not wittingly. 
And then some months later, the Snowden disclosures came out and revealed that, in fact, the government was collecting this information um, and other information in bulk about American citizens. And so uh, news reporter Andrea Mitchell said to Clapper, like, what's the deal? Did you lie? And Clapper said, no, no, I didn't lie. Um, when you say collect, what that means to me is not you know, that we have it. It's when a human looks at it. That's collecting. So, for example, this would not be a collection of books. This is just books that happen to be there, and it's not a collection till I look at it. That's the definition that Clapper had adopted so that he could, in his mind, truthfully answer the question from Senator Wyden. So, we live in this um, world of secrecy where the very programs that we have are hidden from us. And as you look at surveillance law, you realize this, is, this obfuscation is part of the way that they keep us in the dark from knowing what's happening. So obfuscation through word games, um, classification, and the over-classification of these programs, um, and then ultimately just the complexity of the law, which makes a lot of people feel like, how can I understand this and sort of throw up, throw up your hands? Um, and so we have this disengagement, I think, from the public because we don't have information about the abuses and the legal path isn't clear and we're not sure exactly what they're doing. Um, I want to talk a little bit today about one of these very invasive um, uh, investigative techniques that is happening today and that we don't know enough about, but which is very dangerous. And that is government hacking. And so when I say government hacking, what I mean is law enforcement primarily, but also intelligence agencies um, basically breaking into your phone, your laptop, your computer, and collecting information about you from there. And we know that a lot of nations do this, um, from this amazing work by uh, the University of Toronto Citizen Lab. We know that um, you know Mexico does it, Ethiopia does it, Egypt does it. All the best governments are doing it, um, and they're targeting human rights activists and journalists and uh, minority communities in order to get information. Um, our government does it too. Uh, they we call it. Alternately, things like with these euphemistic names, like lawful hacking, as if it's always lawful, when isn't that the question? <laughs> Is it lawful or not? They also call it something like extraordinary access, as if it's really extraordinary, like it's so wonderful. Or it's extraordinary as in it's out of the ordinary, like they're not doing it all the time. Um, but I think the British, at least, have an honest name for it, which is equipment interference, which is actually what it is. So thank you to the Brits for that. Um, but I call it government hacking. And um, what it does is basically um, our government has, we don't have any statutes that actually enable or say it's okay to do this. What law enforcement, particularly the FBI, has been doing is they've been just getting your basic search warrant and then saying, well, that's enough. We can do, once we get a search warrant, we can do whatever we want, even if it's this sort of novel and different kind of investigative technique. Um, and the problem with that is that, you know, I talked about the warrant and how important it is, but it really is, um, you know, sort of 
inadequate for certain kinds of problems. And government hacking is different from your average run-of-the-mill searches that often happen with a warrant in five particular ways. Um, first of all, the amount and quality of data that's available. There is more and more sensitive information on my laptop than in 50 or 100 phone calls that I might make. The invasiveness of the practice. So government hacking can be used not just to access data that's stored in my laptop, but to do things like turn on the camera on my laptop, or turn on the microphone on my smart TV and listen to the stuff that I say. Basically converting these consumer electronics that we have into these ubiquitous in-home surveillance devices, which is super useful um, if you are, want to find out what everybody's doing. The, they, by the very nature of collecting information in this way, the access to the computer can change data that's on the computer. How can somebody who's charged following one of these kinds of searches know that the information that's being used against them has integrity, that it is in fact what the information is and not something that was either intentionally or mistakenly altered by the search procedure. And defense attorneys aren't able to question this because the government says that the te techniques are classified or they um, basically rent the techniques from these companies that um, sell surveillance software or surveillance services to governments and they claim it's a trade secret. So you can't really in inquire about it or investigate it. There, then there are the cybersecurity harms. You know, defense is hard. We all know about the cyber insecurity incidents, whether it's you losing your credit card from Target or TJ Maxx, it's the um, denial of service attacks that take down um, websites or banks, um, we kn it's people getting phished or, um, and having their passwords stolen, or we all know about these problems. And that's because defense is hard. Um, the attacker can attack a million times and only has to win once, the defender has to be there and like win every single time. But with government hacking, instead of making sure that the government is incentivized to be on the defensive and to help secure our networks, now you have the government as an incentivized attacker who's interested in maintaining security vulnerabilities so that it can do surveillance and get into people's computers. And it's a well-funded attacker what does that put the kind of collective? The government is supposed to protect us from these attackers, but now the government is an attacker itself, and so are other governments. So you have this problem where, uh, for example, uh, the government might lose the exploits. And when you lose control of the exploits, that means somebody else can use it. So this is exactly what happened with the recent WannaCry attacks, if people heard about that. It shut down hospitals and caused like a billion dollars worth of damage around the world. That WannaCry attack was based on an NSA exploit that had been stolen. Um, what about the problem of whether um, companies are informed about vulnerabilities in their products so that they can fix it? The government now has an incentive, instead of informing companies you should fix this problem, to keep the problem secret and keep the pathway open so that the attack can happen and the surveillance can take place. Okay, so it just causes these cybersecurity harms. And then finally, you have the problem of public trust. 
In order to convince people to download malware, we've seen the government pretend to be an AP reporter. We've seen the FBI host a child pornography service for two weeks. We've seen uh, the FBI do spear phishing attacks. We've seen the FBI um, ask companies to subvert the security on their products and put back doors in or write malicious software updates so that instead of being secure, your devices become insecure. How can people trust software updates um, and the companies that we do business with, how can people trust the government when there's this fraud going on in order to convince people to install malware on their machines? I don't think a warrant requirement comes even close to mitigating these kinds of harms. And in fact, I don't know that we as lawyers know how to mitigate these kinds of harms. And yet, this is the path that we seem to be going down, and because people don't know a lot about it, we haven't really had this public discussion about what, if anything, we should do about it, or whether this really is something that our, gov our government should be involved in uh, and should be doing, as opposed to using other kinds of um, investigative techniques. So why should you care? Um, everybody has their cause whether it's the environment, or gun control, or um, civil liberties, or um, you're concerned, you're, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're concerned about taxes, whatever your issue is, you've got something. Um, fighting racism, making the criminal justice system more fair. Um, and all these causes are super important. But in order to make things change, you are asking the status quo to change. If it was easy to change, if there was no one invested in how it is, then change would be easy. But change is hard because somebody doesn't want it to be that way. It's hard to make it that way. And those invested powers, they are facilitated. They are empowered even further by the ability to have information on us, to discredit us, to distract us, to mislead us. That information gives power. And so for whatever your interest is, whatever you want to be an activist about, to my mind, freedom from unwarranted and improper surveillance is a baseline that enables that democratic change to occur. It's what enables a society to evolve. And so for me, that's why I care about this. In a way, it's my way of caring about all those other issues as well. So um, can we do it? How, what are we going to do? Um, and I think that a lot of times, at this point, people feel a little bit hopeless um, and are like, oh, this is, you know, messed up in all sorts of ways, so what's the solution? And there are things that we can do. Um, number one, technology. Technology can help us. Technology has taken away, and technology can give back. So the way I described it today, all this data is collected, it's the golden age of surveillance. But you can use encrypted software that rolls that back. 
So look at the security of the things that you use. Choose end-to-end -end encrypted stuff. Use Tor when you browse the internet to hide your IP address and to stop tracking by those annoying little Facebook-like buttons. Making selections about technology can help you. And if it's hard to figure it out yourself, there are organizations that recommend software and technology and practices that you can use. Turn on two-factor authentication. Things like that, and it makes a difference. It really does. Um, second category is legal changes. Um, you know, I'll just be honest. It has not been a good couple of years for legal changes in surveillance. Um, we have lost and lost and lost in the internet civil liberties world, um, and. Uh, I'm hoping that by talking to you guys, we'll lose a little less big next time. Um, there are legal changes we can do. Um, you know, this law that I talked about earlier, the um, phone that, that was the basis for this phone records collection, um, the misinterpretation of which was the basis for the phone records collection, that law was modified. It's coming up for remodification in 18 months. We have a chance to make protections, not just for our phone records, but for our internet transaction records as well, much stronger than they are today in that fight. Um, there was a law that was passed to allow the sharing of cybersecurity indicators and say that personal information that was shared as part of those cybersecurity indicators, it was okay. You didn't have to be super careful about taking that private information out if it was, could be arguably relevant. Well, reports say, from, reports from the government say they don't really need that power to use personal information because those aren't really relevant to cybersecurity threat indicators. That law's coming up in three years. We can take that out. We can just take that loophole out without even necessarily harming the government's ability to share important information anyway. Um, we have uh, the Cloud Act, which just recently passed as part of the omnibus. That law is going to allow other governments to come to the United States and do wiretapping and access information about people from other countries here. And of course, that means they'll be accessing people about, they're accessing information and conversations with us when we talk to people uh, from other nations and without meeting our standards here in the United States. Um, you know, despite everything I've said about our standards here in the United States being too low, uh, Believe it or not, we actually do much better than most countries in the world. Um, some don't even have judicial review b before the fact. And so as part of that Cloud Act, the, our government is going to be negotiating agreements with other governments. And those other governments in the statute don't need to uh, rigorously obey human rights laws, for example. We can fight the um, adoption of these treaties and insist that these governments have strong civil liberties protections and protections for human rights before they can get data uh, um, from us, about us and our friends overseas from our internet companies here. So there are a lot of uh, battles here. And then finally, I'll say um, another battle is uh, to preserve encryption. Right now, um, not very much of our data is end-to-end -end encrypted at all. And that means that it's accessible by providers and it's accessible by the government. Nevertheless, the FBI has been on this campaign, which it calls the going dark problem, to say that strong end-to-end -end encryption is making it too hard for the FBI to solve crimes. And so it has been pushing 
um, for decades, actually since first intelligence and then law enforcement since the 1970s, has been pushing for rules that would uh, say that strong encryption is not allowed. Providers have to be able to decrypt information about you and hand it over to the government, um, which creates all kinds of cybersecurity risks. We've seen it in the phone context. And there will be a bill, um, probably sometime this year, that Senators Feinstein and Burr will introduce that will say, there shall not, <laughs> there shall not be strong encryption. Um, companies have to basically have backdoor encryption. And it's something that cryptographers have said you pretty uniformly, you know, encryption and security are hard. We need to make it as secure as possible. It's not possible to build something that gives access to the government and doesn't also give access to other governments like China and Mexico and Ethiopia and Egypt and uh, create the risk that hackers and um, identity thieves will exploit the same weakness and get access to our data that way. So it's time to stand up and fight for encryption. We, Dianne Feinstein is our senator. Um, she hasn't listened to me so far, but you know, if her constituents stand up and say, this is important and you're up for re-election and we care about this, then maybe we can make a difference in uh, you know, how, this, how this happens and how this goes down. So I, uh, despite all the losses that well, you know, we've suffered in the past two or three years, I am hopeful um, that we can do something. Um, we can do something to take, change this from the uh, golden age for surveillance and take some of that data back and regain control of it. I'm hopeful that with congressional investigations and Freedom of Information Act requests, we're going to be able to find out more and more about what the government is doing um, and end the ubiquitous secrecy. And I'm hopeful that we are going to be able to technologically, legally, and politically uh, make some advances here and uh, be able to protect our data and protect our privacy and thereby protect our civil liberties and our democracy as well. Thank you. So. Thank you. That was great. Um, and Joe's going to have uh, a mic. We've got a lot of uh, folks. I know some great questions will be coming from the audience. Um, how do you keep your spirits up and keep fighting this good fight? I'm really curious because, you yeah. know, um, you're, you have been moving to tougher and bigger um, angles on this fight from representing <laughs> individuals to now... Um, you know, the um, some of you, I think I may have even told this to uh, Jennifer was going to speak for us in November, but um, she had to be in the Supreme Court. So that's a good note, and we let her out of that commitment. Um, yeah. So, so um, how how do you keep your your energy up, and what drives you to yeah. to, to keep pushing for these? Well, my friends who know me say I have an extraordinary capacity for sustained outrage, and uh, I think that. That, that was a problem as a child, but, uh, <laughs> but I've turned it into a professional asset, so. <laughs> um, can, you, can you give us a list? You mentioned Ron Wyden, and he's obviously uh, a leading light in some of these things. He's a hero. Put, put, a, put some white hats on some people and point us to some resources that are just from a news perspective or an opinion perspective. What, what are some, for, for folks that want to 
keep following these things. And, yeah. and also maybe mention what committees are really involved um, at the legislative level that, that we should know yeah. about. Yeah, so both intelligence committees are very active in this, um, and the intelligence committees tend to be more pro-surveillance, um, both meaning Senate and House. The Judiciary Committees um, tend to be more balanced about these issues, and so those are both uh, relevant. And then you have the you know, Federal, Tr Federal Trade Commission, which is very interested in protecting consumers, so they're often very concerned, both from a... Um, you know, sort of a, the, the private side about how private businesses use our data and then also how that's funneled to, um, you know, funneled to, to governments. And didn't we just have a liberal, uh, or at least a Democratic uh, FTC commissioner, like just announce their retirement. Yeah, Terrell McSweeney just uh, yeah. announced that she was going. You know, this is not a partisan issue in a lot of ways. You have, it's really kind of like the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, like the Zoe Lofgrens and the Ron Wyden's, and then you have the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, like the um, Rand Paul's and uh, Will Hurd from Texas and others like that, and they are sort of bind together, and Eric, Swal uh, Eric Swalwell and um, Justin Amash on the Republican side and it's really kind of the middle moderates, the Feinsteins and the Pelosi's and the, you know, who just are not, um, don't, don't get it. Yeah, even with Trump in power where you would think, here we've been telling you that there's this risk of abuse and now you have people in office who are like, if somebody messes with me, I'm going to strike back against them a hundred times harder and they're still giving this power to the Trump administration. And, and uh, you've actually written a bit about how, in some ways, the Trump situation on privacy is better than it was in Obama. Unpack that. Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the problems we started with were these were problems under, under Obama, but um, the Trump administration did do um, something better. So one of the issues in the government hacking debate is when is the government going to tell us about vulnerabilities so companies can fix it, and when are they going to keep them secret? And the Obama administration had put out this kind of mishmash, wishy-washy policy that was like, we're going to follow this protocol some of the time. Um, and then Trump had appointed uh, Rob Joyce, formerly of the NSA, and he was um, doing cybersecurity in the White House, and they put out an updated and much improved version of this procedure or this policy. And so, you know, we basically were like, this is better, we praised it. Ultimately, I think there's a real problem with having a policy decide these questions because um, the incentives are wrong. But at least there was a clear po clearer policy. These are the paths they're going to take. Here's who's going to be involved in that kind of thing. But I heard Rob Joyce just left the White House recently, so that's and too bad. How, how, how could the incentives be right? How could they be lined up? Well, I think there, it's, it's really the issue in the way that lawyers think about things. So we basically established this multi-factor test for when vulnerabilities should be disclosed. And the factors are things like, what are the chances that somebody else discovered it and is going to exploit it? If somebody exploited it, how expensive and painful would it be? Um, and those are totally the right questions, but no one knows the answer to those. It's impossible to know the answer. So you're asking the right questions, but ultimately your conclusions are going to be based on your prejudices. And then and the problem is, who's in the room? It's the Defense Department, it's the intelligence agencies, it's the Department of Justice, the prosecutors, and who's not in the room? The people who are on the side of the consumers, like the FTC, um, the people who are on the side of you know, international worries, like about government
attacking us, like the State Department. You know, so if you don't have hard rules that say, thou shalt disclose these vulnerabilities in all these cases, and you have this like soft kind of policy-based you know, multi-factor test, um, like we lawyers like to have, then it really matters who's gonna, it's, it really matters who's gonna make the decision because prejudices and um, preconceptions will feed into that. I think we've got a question in the audience. Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, my question is regarding the ACLU. So um, since you, since the ACLU did the soul searching that you were saying after the Charlottesville tragedy happened, have you decided not to represent the alt-right anymore? No, that's not, that to be, I want to be very clear. I want to be very clear because, um, you know, it's a, it's a decades old, you know, 300 lawyer organization. So I <laughs> got to get it exactly right. The issue was not that we wouldn't um, represent the ability of the alt-right to protest or to speak, but that where, um, where uh, an extremist ideology is tied with potential violence that we would um, likely not weigh in there. So um, we were gonna look much more, scrutinize much more carefully the facts of the situation to see where the you know, odious ideology whose right to be expressed we defend coincided with violence, which we do not, do not support and wanna stop. Okay, can I just do a follow-up for that? Sure, please. Um, so the alt-right, as I understand it, is a bunch of, like, kind of an amalgamation of hate groups, which I mean, in our, I would, let's just say, like, white extremists, white extremists who are advocating, you know, I don't know, people have different names for it, but, sure, yeah. Okay, so to me, that seems like, um, that's obviously a violent, a hate group is a violent group. Um, I guess I'm just confused about that difference um, for the you. So, you know, the, you have the right to express hatred um, about something or somebody, but you don't have the right to hurt that person. And I think it's very, um, there, there's a view that the expressing of the hate against a disadvantaged group in particular is in itself violence. And I, that's not uh, what the First Amendment holds and that's not uh, what the ACLU's belief is. Um, it, is we have to tolerate odious ideas um, for a couple of reasons, one of which is they need people need to know what it is so that it's out there and can be counteracted. And I think the other main theory is that um, the government is a terrible decider of what is and what is not hateful speech. And that left to its own devices, the government will not choose to protect uh, the We'll, we'll choose to protect the speech of, you know, the white supremacists and not protect the speech of disadvantaged groups. And we see that has already happened with the creation of this idea that there are black identity extremists that are a hate group, but with the actual total ignoring of the, um, of the right-wing uh, Nazi-affiliated racists. So, to, to sort of... Um explore a little more around that. Can you say something about how ACLU makes its decisions on, because there's an internal process and there's, and also, uh, so free speech is one of the big things that you're an advocacy for, but, but there's also 
there's a, is, it, is it a quality? I'm yeah, it so we, I mean, there's a lot of times things are, you know, we have d different interests that are in tension. Yeah. So privacy and free speech is one of them, you know, where you have the right to say stuff, but it also might be private stuff about certain individuals, you know, and that's a, or you're reporting on something, but it's somebody's, you know, it's somebody's like, personal information, um, then re religion and uh, equality is another one. So one of the ACLU's cases, this term, Masterpiece Cake Shop, is a case where uh, owner of a fancy cake store said that they didn't want to make a cake for a um, gay couple that was getting married because it was against their religious beliefs. So then you have this idea of it's like, well, our religious freedom versus the um, 14th Amendment that says you can't discriminate, right? Or, and the idea that we fight for equality for, um, you know, for people regardless of their sexual orientation. And the ACLU took the position in that case on the side of the couple that wanted to get married and not on the side of the, um, of the cake shop owner. And you know, within the organization, I, I don't know that everybody, I mean, it's a lot of lawyers, I don't know that everybody agrees with it. I can't say too, too much about how the, these are decided because I've only been there like right. seven months, right. but it's a democratic process and it's one where everybody who has a specialty in the relevant areas is spoken to and you know, talked to and gets together and kind of hashes it out. And then ultimately, you know, if we're going to be involved, decisions can be made by leadership, but informed by this process. And I think it's really good because it makes us take more nuanced positions when we know that there's multiple interests at stake and we have lawyers who care vehemently about those interests who are in the room basically having that discussion. Yeah. yeah. Do you have another? Right there. So. Um, I've got a, a two short points. The first is I read somewhere that there was some monitoring of people that downloaded, downloaded the Tor browser um, because of its uh, browsing anonymity. Um, the other question is, I recall that at one point a warrant was required where there was a reasonable expectation of privacy and with technology exploding the way it is, hasn't that led to an erosion of what one can reasonably expect to be private? Yeah, okay, great, both great questions. Um, I think what the news was about Tor was that the FBI had um, been acting as Tor exit nodes or in a way to try to, and because t there weren't enough Tor uh, users that they were um, in some cases able to de-anonymize um, people who were using Tor, in particular, I think the intelligence agencies were doing that. Um, they're not always able to do that, and of course, the more people who use it, the, the better it is. Um, it's also true that the Tor browser gets better and better, the security improvements over time. So, um, you know, no technology is, is, is perfect. Um, but it does protect you from um, being tracked in, in, by those Facebook likes and other stuff as well. So there's this real benefit to using it. Um, in terms of the reasonable expectation of privacy, thanks for asking that question. That is the trigger for Fourth Amendment protection. And the Fourth Amendment generally says if you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, then generally you have to get a warrant for it and go through that process that I described. But as you have all of this information, what's the reasonable expectation of privacy? Um, it has to be something more than basically giving up. You know, it can't just be like, oh man, I've given up. 
So there's no Fourth Amendment anymore. You know, there's a normative aspect to it as well as a um, descriptive aspect. But what the line is is hard to say. So the court has said things like, you have an expectation of privacy in the content of your phone calls, um, but you don't have an expectation of privacy in the phone numbers that you dial. Um, and then that has been extrapolated to all kinds of things. What does that mean for email? What does that mean for IP addresses? What does that mean for browsing history and those sorts of things? So the Carpenter case, which is the one we had before the court uh, that made me cancel on you in November, um, is one of those cases. It's a case involving cell phone data um, historical cell phone data so that the phone company collects to do billing and tracking um, and can be used to identify your location going back in time. So in the olden days, if they wanted to know where I was four months ago, you're kind of out of luck. Today, it's simple to find out not just where I have been, but where we've all been. Um, and so this information uh, they got without a warrant, and um, we're litigating this case to say you should have to get a warrant to find this information. The argument is, one, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it because it's like phone numbers dialed. It's this routing information or metadata. Um, and also, like, even if it was sort of private, it's in the hands of the phone company. It's a billing record in the hands of the phone company, and uh, the idea there is that information you disclose to third parties, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in. Um, that's the third-party doctrine. One of the reasons we're interested in the case is to push back on that third-party doctrine and say, guess what? All our information today is in the hands of third parties. And guess what? It's super private. So sorry, but no, you know, some of that information has to be protected by the Constitution or the whole, you know, democratic edifice falls down. So we're expecting that decision to be issued, you know, by June, and then we'll know. <laughs> so so let, me, let me summarize that and, and make sure I've got it right, because one aspect at least is it's, it is uh, a law that's based around a landline, and it probably predates phones as well, right? Or it, is it? The, that distinction is from 76, okay. and it was based on bank records, and then the phone, and then like the phone numbers dialed. And, and they're applying it to everything that's Everything there in that's a not, phone. yeah, basically yeah. everything that's not content. They're like, and even with content, they're like, well, email's different. Well, we don't want to say you don't have an expectation of privacy in your email, but we don't think you do, but we're going to pretend for now because we don't want the courts to think we're crazy. Um, but basically, if it's not the content and it's of communications between two people, then we get it because it's just transactional metadata and that's not protected. That's and not what the law says, but that's the argument. And what turns on this decision? Because we have everything. About, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's it's either going to reinforce that a mobile phone is exactly like your old living room phone that was anchored to your house. Is, is that correct? And yeah. that um, it, are there gr shades of gray in there that you anticipate, yeah. or is it really just one way or the other? No, I think we're going to definitely see some shades of gray. The court's going to try to walk the line where it protects some data but doesn't open the door to everything requiring a warrant and isn't going to want to decide technology that's not before it. But what we've seen with the court is that they get it. Okay. This court gets it. Um, and so there was another case involving a phone. It was the Riley case just from a couple of years ago. And, you know, when you get arrested, the cops can search stuff that's on your body. So if you get arrested and you've got a cigarette pack on you in your pocket, they can look in there and find your little bindle of cocaine. And they don't need a warrant for that. That's search incident to arrest. It's warrantless. Um, and the government was making the argument, like, when you have your phone on you, we can search through your phone, too. It's just like a cigarette package. It's just like a little box. And the court was like, no. Phones, okay. cell phones are different. 
and we're not gonna have that rule. You can't do searches incident to arrest with cell phones because of the amount and quality of data in there, it's just categorically different. So I think this court, there's other examples, but I think this court kind of gets the idea that digital is different and we need to do something, we can't just apply the old, uh, you know, sort of rotely apply the old precedents. And, and, um, and still also that, that the finger, uh, the touch lock, is that, is don't that, use is that, that accurate? Yeah. yeah. So, so say, say something <laughs> don't about use that real that. quick. That'll be our practical <laughs> tip So, yeah, that where you do your finger, you can, they can just grab your hand and touch it, and then you unlock your phone, and you lose whatever digital protection that you had there. I know it's really convenient, but you should use a passcode, because we have this other amendment, the Fifth Amendment, um, and basically it protects, the way it's been interpreted is it protects things you have to reveal or say, like your passcode, um, but it doesn't protect biometrics, like your face print or your iris print or your fingerprint. So if you lock your phone with a fingerprint, they'll make you unlock it, but if you lock your phone with a passcode, they may not. So in order to get full legal protection, don't use biometrics. There's another reason not to use biometrics, but... Do, don't use do you see a case coming down the line where that'll be tested? We have had a couple of cases on that. Not, bef not at the Supreme Court level, but we've had a couple cases. And the, the, the way the courts are evolving is fingerprints are a fair game, but, but forcing passcode disclosure is uh, usually not. Okay, uh, there's another question right there with the mic. Second yeah. Hi, um, trying to set this up as briefly as possible, but I feel like this talk is sort of pitched directly to the center of a worldview, and it just so happens to be mine and uh, most people in the room. But Awesome. Um, but, but at the same time, it's framed a bit as the defenders of the right, true, and the beautiful versus the people who are the corruptors or the myopic people in society. And the world is never quite that simple. And so I guess my question to you is, what is the best argument you've heard that cuts directly against the position that you're fighting for? And what is the thing that you're the, less sure, the least sure about in, in the world that is hard? Yeah, I mean, I think my position is pretty, you know, as I sit here today, is pretty moderate. You know, the, what, what I'm saying is, if you're going to spy on us, you should have a reason that is targeted to the particular individuals. Like, that's really lame for, like, a crusade. You know, I mean, like, you could, if you're going to crusade about something, you could, like, really gather around something, like, much more, you know, valiant than that. But this is a very modest proposal. Um, the argument against even that modest proposal is that it's too hard. Warrants are a pain in the ass. Am I allowed to say ass? Warrants are a pain in the ass. For starters. Free speech. Um, it's, and it's it takes time for us to do. And, you know, we're basically only using our powers for good to get terrorists and criminals. And why would you interpose this procedural hurdle, which is just going to get in the way? I'm sorry, just one follow-up for that. Isn't that a strong man with the counter argument? That, that, to me, doesn't feel like the best possible construction of a smart, ethical interlocutor. Well, that's what they say, so, I mean... <laughs> if you think the DOJ can do better, we'll pay you not to go there and tell them what they should say. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, those are, that is the arguments against warrants, is that, um, it, you, know, we'll, that you know, basically that uh, we won't be able to catch people and then good people will die. So, so and, and you pointed to law enforcement more than intelligence agencies. Right. I think there's more we can actually do about law enforcement. Intelligence, intelligence reform is hard. The question that that brings to mind for me is we see all these local police departments with SWAT uniforms now. Is that, 
are, uh, besides the FBI, besides the, the top of the Department of Justice, yeah. are there, is, are we going to see local constituencies or state level? Is that happening? Yeah, that's a, happen? I mean, that's a great point. We see the technology trickle down from the intelligence agencies. So, for example, you know, there was, used to be military technology, and then you see it in Flint, you know, or you had uh, intelligence was able to turn on microphones and, um, you know, hack iPhones and stuff like that. And then the FBI wanted the technology, and now you're run-of-the-mill, like, local police department bought a tool that lets them unlock every iPhone through iOS 11 with, for a with a $50 tool. So you see that technology gets cheaper and cheaper, and as it does, it trickles through the system to, you know, some, to, to police departments that are not necessarily the best trained or supervised. Yeah. Um, hi. I'm sorry. Okay, awesome. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, I am a, like, hardline, born and raised supporter of the ACLU, so your work is awesome. Thank I you. I fully support your stance. And um, I have a two-part question that is partly born of my like personal unease with the alt-right stuff lately, where I've also been having a lot of these conversations where like a hardline free speech stance seems to come in conflict with um, other questions. So one of the parts of this question is, the first part is, um, I'm curious about how you define violent speech, especially when the types of weapons that are becoming available are increasingly powerful and potentially things that people could have at home based on speech. So for example, I mean, this is like kind of a science fiction scenario, but I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility. If people can like print the bubonic plague using their like home bioprinter, right? Obviously not soon, but like sometime, then is that like protected speech? Like is the recipe for that disease protected speech? Um, when it could get into the hands of like alt-right terrorists, basically. And then um, kind of the second follow-up question is about, um, well, actually maybe if you could answer that one first, then I'll ask. Yeah, okay. I was like, oh, maybe she's going to ask her other question, then I can think about this more. <laughs> um, you know, the line between, uh, you know, I think your point is that with technology, the line between what can be used to hurt people um, is, you know, not as clear as it was in the olden days, where it was like sticks and stones may break my bones, but, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a horde of trolls from, you know, or it is can't hurt me, and I think you know it's it, it this idea of code as speech is kind of the precursor to the bio uh, example that you used. And what we uh, the position we took um, when I was at EFF, for example, is that the ideas in code are speech. So to the extent that the recipe expresses an idea or a principle, that that is speech. But the functionality of the code can be regulated. Um, and it's not always an easy line to draw, but you could therefore, for example, not stop publication of code that explained how to subvert digital rights management on a 
copyrighted work. You could not stop publication of code that showed that Cisco routers were vulnerable. You could not, that would all be, um, you, you know, code that shows how election systems can be hacked. That all would be speech, but when you compile and then try to use it, that becomes a tool and we regulate tools. So, and then, you know, there's different tests under the First Amendment, but the idea is that there's, you know, there is nevertheless a distinction there because even functional code or fun can have expressive elements and we have to protect those expressive elements. Okay, um, that's interesting, thank you. So my second question is, um, so again, as part of this unease, I've been trying to do further research and try to understand um, what we know about how people are radicalized and what leads them to do things like commit acts of mass terrorism. Um, and it's a very interesting but also very confusing field because we don't necessarily know a whole lot about that, right? So I guess I'm, I'm just curious if you personally or if you know whether the ACLU or the FF has like knowledge that's propagated within those organizations um, or ideas about what role content plays in that? Yeah, um, so that's a great question. I can't speak for the organizations. Um, I think that the best work, the best research on radicalization um, comes from a particular researcher named Peter Neumann. Um, and he ha has written a number of books and is uh, with a, a think tank or, or a university in London and has done an immense amount of work on why people uh, turn to ISIS or you know, other kinds of organizations like that. And I, I mean, I don't wanna, it's complicated. It, you know, he's written a lot of books on it, but I think a major um, factor is personal experience. So it is when you know somebody who has joined the group or when you personally have had an experience where your parents were killed or your town was burned down um, and you blame the entity that you turn against. That's a major factor. It's not the only factor, but it is, it is a, it is a um, good predictor. We have one more question back there. Hey there. Um, I really like your work. I hope the ACLU does like get much stronger um, and protects privacy. But I've always kind of wondered um, about the common response to if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about. The, the common response is, oh, well, because we have this privacy, um, people feel more free to explore differently or Actually, it's because we have stuff to hide. Like, I don't want my seditious ideas and the list of people I like having sex with and the list of drugs I like doing. I, I don't want that published and out there. Um, but what would a world be like where we didn't feel that we had to hide those things? It, kind of feels like San Francisco. Like I, I can actually be open <laughs> about the drugs that I like to do and the people that I like to have sex with and maybe my seditious, my seditious ideas. And what if that's just the way the world was everywhere? And what if we have to go there just because it's impossible to actually? Yeah, I mean, this is a David Brin idea, right? The idea that we'd have, okay, that we, you know, that um, basically that what all this, uh, you know, lack of privacy is going to do uh, is going to make us a much more open and understanding society. 
with a lot of casualties along the way before we actually get there. Um, but that, you know, in the end, that it's good for us. And certainly, I think we see these trends, right? Um, you know, uh, Dr. King was, you know, basically told that he'd be better off killing himself than to find out he had an extramarital affair. And now we have Trump in the White House, and it's fine. Um, you know, it used to be, uh, I mean, it still is, but it used to be much more common that if they, somebody found out that you uh, were attracted, you, your sexual orientation was for people of your same gender, that you would be, couldn't be employed, that you would be kicked out of the military, that you would, you know, people's lives are still in danger, you know, here in the United States and other places, but it's much different now um, than it was then. And so we have this greater openness that has led to this, you know, led to this difference. Um, you know, we're not in that world, um, and it's not where everything's fine, and it's really not for the majority to decide. Um, you know, when people say I have nothing to hide, either they're lying, um, or they're not thinking about who they want to hide it from, their boss or their mom or somebody like or that. Or somebody in 10 years, yeah. long-term thinking. Yes, because, 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 yeah, or, right, exactly, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, because, because values it comes change. comes up with a divorce proceeding in yes. a while or whatever, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's also a very privileged idea. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I was at another conference earlier today, and, uh, um, the speaker on my panel gave a talk about, um, she's a trans woman and gave a talk about what it's like going through TSA. And apparently when you go through TSA, they pick whether they think you're a male or a female. And then when you go through the scanner, uh, if your under, if your body doesn't conform with the button that the person picked, then you're pulled aside for all kinds of extra questioning and whatever. And so, you know, it's just very easy, I think, for people to, you know, who are, not going to be the targets to say, well, nobody should, you know, it's, have anything to hide. But we don't really, we don't really live that life. We don't really inhabit it, so we can't really say that. I mean, Dr. King had stuff to hide, and we needed him around. When we're going to have to to wrap up, Jennifer's going to stick around again. Her book is in the back. She's going to be signing. She's going to be here and ready to keep talking and keep answering more questions until we eventually let you go. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I want to actually bring it back to something that we touched on just briefly, which is the Cloud Act, but, but with a particular angle on it, too. So um, a lot of software companies are actually running into more privacy challenges um, from governments in Europe today, it seems, than, than right. here in the US. And it seems like, um, I, I've started to think, is, uh, is Europe the new California <laughs> in some ways in terms of... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, so, so, so it's troubling that, um, and if you're not familiar with the Cloud Act, uh, it came to my attention because I saw that the Department of Homeland Security chief from George W. Bush's administration was strongly advocating for it, which is always a red flag. Um, so so um, tell us briefly what it is, but it's base, is, it, is it kind of sharing the, hey, we've got, um, and you know, we didn't even mention the, the shout out to Total Information Awareness uh, in the upper corner yes. of our auto drawing. Admiral Poindexter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, are they kind of sharing the best practices that, yeah. that uh, the intelligence agencies have on the US population and letting other countries now be a part of that? Yeah, I mean, sort of big picture, I think the United States has traditionally been soft on private use of data and had rules about government access to data. And like I said, um, I'm very, you know, even though I think our rules 
suck, um, I think we're one of the best in the world. Our government's still one of the best in the world. And we, could, we need to get better. In Europe, they've um, traditionally had stricter rules on private use of data and you know, very liberal rules loose on government access. For example, UK doesn't have a judge review the surveillance warrants. Um, they can do wiretapping, but then they just don't use it in the case. They take the information they learned from wiretapping, and then they find another avenue to get at that same information, and then they use that in the case and say they got it from this other so avenue. They, they kind of even reverse though, engineer. Yeah, what, yeah. yeah, we call it parallel construction, but wow. that's the way they do it, which is like, so you got it this way, but instead of saying that in court, you pretend you got it this way? Just... You know, that but is extraordinary. Yes, it is. It is. It's extraordinary. So, um, you know, what's happening now, though, is, you know, the Internet's global and the governments are finally catching up. So on the private side, Europe has um, this uh, this law, the GDPR, and it's going to go into effect, I think, next month. And so companies that are global have to make decisions about how are they, what are they going to do? Are they going to comply with the GDPR just in Europe? Or are they going to give those protections to all their users? How are they going to handle it? Hence and, the California parallel, because yes. in some things, California rules being more strict. Right, yeah. like with data breach notification yeah. or something like that, because California's been in the vanguard. And then on the other hand, you have the, the government stuff, because the GDPR and the privacy shield and those those stuff that's going on in Europe hasn't really addressed the the criminal aspect or the intelligence aspect and so you know what we're seeing what we see there is basically um, there was this fight initiated by Microsoft over whether the US government could access data stored overseas and Microsoft made this kind of novel argument and got courts to say, no, you can't access that data overseas without Congress doing something about it. And then meanwhile, governments overseas wanted data here in the United States. And the process was you had to go through this thing where you got your local court and, and stuff. And when you say data here, just to make sure I'm following, when you say data, you're not talking, are you talking about privacy data or just stuff their corporation? Um, Mostly I'm talking about like email content okay. or, you know, anything like that. Of their that. users to use for some So purpose. let's say you had a, you know, a British citizen mm -hmm. and um, he or she was using Google and the information is accessible here. Right. Uh, what uh, was the proper process is you took your British court order or signed order from the commissioner or whatever, and then you had to come here and get a U.S. court to say there's probable cause and you met the U.S. standards to get this information. And that was taking a really long time yeah. because the whole system was underfunded. It's called MLAT, Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty Process. And so it was underfunded. So the U.K. in particular, but other governments too, France and Germany were pissed. They're like, why can't we get information and the U.S. government can? And the U.S. government was pissed. They're like, why can't we get information that's stored overseas? That doesn't make sense. So um, they got together and passed the Cloud Act. And the Cloud acts like, okay, U.S. government now can get data stored overseas, and other governments um, that enter into agreements with the U.S. government can now get data and, for the first time in history, do wiretapping here inside the United States. So that's the cloud. That's what the Cloud Act and, has and, wrought. And are those wiretaps approved by any judge of any sort? They'll be approved by whatever is the process in the, com in the country. In the country. And then there has to be some kind of independent review, but it doesn't have to take place first. It can take place afterwards. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, 
All right, well, <laughs> on that happy note, and we can follow up with more questions, um, thank you again for coming and for being a great audience. Thank Please you. Please stick around and come and ask more questions. Let's give Jennifer a big round of applause. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.